You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Many of us that are living in smaller spaces can feel like growing crops seriously isn't an option for us. In this episode, we're lucky enough to have Angelo Eliades on the podcast, who was able to yield 133 kilos of produce in his first year of growing on his urban backyard farm with 60 square metres of garden beds in Melbourne. He was trained by Jeff Lawton and he runs the Deep Green Permaculture website, which is one of the best permaculture resources around in my opinion. The experience and knowledge he shares in this episode will teach you how to allow nature to help you grow more with less. Whether you're running a farm, landscaping for clients, or you're like me and you have a balcony or courtyard with a bit of sunlight that you'd like to take advantage of. G'day Angelo, welcome to the show mate. Yep, no problem. Um, Thank you very much. I'm glad to be on the show and glad to be able to share my thoughts and ideas with your audience. Yeah, I really love your website, Deep Green Permaculture. There is so much really high quality knowledge on there for anyone who really wants to get into permaculture, especially for people who are living in urban environments like me. Thank you. That's You've summed it up beautifully because my focus is on urban agriculture. It's about growing food. And for those who don't know what permaculture is, it's essentially ecological garden design. It's about working with nature, letting nature do all the work so you have to do less. And that way you can garden more sustainably at a lower cost and with more efficiency. So that's what we're promoting. And the permaculture system essentially came out of Tasmania, of all things. It's a homegrown product, so to speak, <laughs> to Tasmanian ecologists back in the 1970s, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren came up with a system which essentially took all the best practices from around the world um, that Indigenous people have been using and various groups throughout, throughout time and through across all different geographical areas. And what they did with that is that they put the science behind it, explained it in terms of ecology, um, botany, horticulture, um, biology, you name it. They, it's essentially multi, multidisciplinary um, applied science, which was started off with a focus on growing food, but it ended up becoming a focused on living sustainably. Mm. In, um, I think ATRA, the American organization which looks after organic gardening, they, what's a bit of a weird way to put it, ATRA, which is essentially one of the organic gardening representative organizations, I believe, um, they described it as ecological engineering. It's essentially working with nature, building with nature. So I tried it about 10 years ago. Yeah, it was about, no, 2008. I've lost track of the years. (laughs) Yeah, over 10 years ago. So what are you looking at like 13 years ago now? Yeah, because I started my um, organic gardening in about 2002, which was a long time ago, and I was looking for more um, sustainable ways to garden organically and came across permaculture. And after looking into it, I'm a biomedical scientist by background, so I take a very technical approach to my gardening and – For me, I'm very, how would you say, critical of um, unfounded sort of practices that are basically based on just hearsay. So I looked at how this all worked and decided to try it out, ended up building a demonstration food forest in my um, garden, which became a um, quite a celebrated 
gardening in the permaculture community it also was part of the Australian Open Garden Scheme in its last two years of running. And we had a huge audience to turn out in the tiny little back urban back area, about 600 people coming in in the weekend, which was really, really good. And one thing that fascinated me is that seeing is believing. I, um, I heard what my teacher was saying about using ecological principles to build a food garden and just saying he explained pretty well that over the last, you know, what was it, 300, uh, sorry, 460 million odd years that plants have been growing and 370 million years that trees have been growing, nature's evolved some amazing mechanisms to sustain plant systems, plant communities. And if we leverage those systems that already exist in nature that evolved over that time, we can build systems that look after themselves because no one mows, sprays, prunes forests. They all look after themselves on their own. They regenerate their own soil. And no one has to feed them with fertilizer and so forth. So looking at nature as a sort of a peak sustainable system, we can model our systems off that, not to the whole exact extent. It's not necessary, but we can take some, borrow some of those principles to reduce our workload. And that's what I did. And it worked. And I ended up with a demonstration food forest, which worked out really, really good. And from that, I sort of started teaching what I do and showing people how it's done and um, also teach people basic garden fundamentals. So it's really important to understand the basics of gardening before you start looking towards advanced systems of gardening. But because uh, a lot of people can't get permaculture to work, it's because they're just lacking in their fundamentals. But once you've got the fundamentals down pat and their true, proper scientific fundamentals grounded in real science rather than just hearsay, you can create some pretty amazing backyard veggie gardens. If you want to take it the next step, you step into permaculture and then you do it in an amazing way that most people wouldn't believe because nature's doing all the work for you. Yeah, absolutely. What you said there about plant communities is really, really key, I think. I started growing lettuces recently and, you know, they were going fine and they were going good, but I put in some chickweed to as basically like a living mulch. And yeah. I'm not sure if I'm going crazy or what, but the lettuces just seem to be so much happier since I did that. Yep. Um, welcome to the world of companion planting, Daniel. <laughs> um, I, it's a subject that I teach, actually, I'm quite fond of. If you look in nature, no plant lives on its own. Every plant lives in interaction with another one. When I studied um, biology in first year uni, we did botany and we also covered some ecology as well. And one of the things that was impressed on me is that living systems, biological systems are complex systems and things don't work Think nothing exists in a vacuum. Everything works together, and there's there's a, mind you there's some, there's a few bad interactions, there's a few really good interactions, and there's a lot of just neutral interactions. But when you look at any living system, there is essentially an ecosystem happening where there's interactions between living species. That's what ecology is all about. It's funny how we can have the, um, applied sciences like agriculture and horticulture which deny the existence of ecology. Well, they don't deny it, but they almost act as if it didn't really exist. It's almost like, hey, we're just going to, we know this exists. We know that all living things work in relation to each other and they form stable communities and they create stable systems that always harmonise towards balance and so forth. But we can ignore that because we want to do something that aims at human convenience. And I think that's a terrible approach because no other science that I know of, none of the biomedical sciences can actually ignore any, any of the other biomedical sciences, for example, 
you, like if you're doing pharmacology, you can't ignore the whole discipline of microbiology, for example. You can't pretend that, that the whole world of germs doesn't exist, but we're, we're pretending that the whole world of plants and microbes and the synergy that happens between them doesn't exist. I thought, for me, that's a terrible approach to science. That's very unscientific. And that's why when you apply the same rigor that you would apply in um, in any of the other sciences to growing food, you steer away from a lot of the agricultural and horticultural practices towards more ecological practices. And that's why I practice a system of ecological gardening. And the funniest thing is the most efficient veggie growing systems that I've seen, just straight intensive veggie growing systems, weren't devised by horticulturists or agriculturists, strangely enough. The, there's an amazing system that I discovered a while back called Square Foot Gardening by a gentle, an American gentleman by the name of Mel Bartholomews. Now, the f- funny story with Mel, he's, he was an engineer by trade. And engineers are very precise mathematically. And for them, everything has to have rationale and they balance everything up and lay up bits and pieces to make sure that what they're building is sufficient to do the job and so forth. And he looked at um, how people grow food and he goes, he, he looked at it and thought, this is just nonsense. Half of this stuff, no one can explain to me. People just say to me, we just do it because it just is. And the logic behind it doesn't make sense. Why would, why would you pl- plant 10 heads of cabbage and then have them all half-centered once. He goes, when would you actually walk into a supermarket and load your trolley with 10 heads of cabbage? That doesn't make sense. That is an engineer speaking. Obviously, you can see them, how their minds work. So he said, why wouldn't you plant at the same rate that you would actually purchase your mm. produce? Therefore, it would make more sense. I said, rather than emulate farms which have very, very yeah. different goals of producing a glut of one crop all at once to go to market, if you want to create a sustainable harvest for your family, you would plant at a rate. You would plan it and plant at the rate that you shop at. You know, obviously building a marginal buffer for seasonal mishaps and things like that. But you can do it that way. And it's funny that that came out of an engineer. The system of permaculture came out from two ecologists. So it's almost like the last person that we would actually look to growing food for would be an agriculturist, strangely enough, because they're mainly geared around um, large-scale farming without any regard for essentially environment, ecosystem, or sustainability. So as you mentioned, the most important thing is, you know, the interaction of plants with each other. With your example, the lettuce is obviously benefiting from the chickweed. At the very minimal, I could easily explain the part that what, what, you, what's, what you're seeing happening is the chickweed's creating a living mulch. Your soil is essentially, well, everyone's soil, healthy soil is a living ecosystem. One tablespoon of healthy soil holds approximately somewhere between 20 to 50 billion soil organisms, whereas a human population is only 7 billion. So it's a very, very rich ecosystem. It's actually the most complicated ecosystem on the planet, the soil. And the all those little microbes and bugs and um, critters in the soil, they create what you call a soil food web. Its purpose is to take anything that was once living and recycle it into a form which plants can actually use, making the nutrients available for them. So when you have a healthy soil, you have all this uh, microbial and insect and arthropod and everything else and fungal activity going on beyond the soil. That is very sensitive to compaction so you don't walk on it the other thing is also very sensitive to heat also if 
if you have bare soil, it even gets compacted by rain, believe it or not, and the pores and the gaps in soil are really, really important because they allow oxygen to travel through the soil and water. And healthy soil is actually 25% water and 25% air, which most people don't realise. Those little organisms do need oxygen as well. The other thing is they're very sensitive to drying out because they're microorganisms or subterranean organisms, and they also are sensitive to UV. UV sunlight, basically, which ultraviolet light is used commercially to sterilise things because it kills living things. So when you have bare soil, um, it essentially gets killed, dried, and kills off all the soil microorganisms. So when you cover it, keep it protected, it keeps it moist, keeps it dark, and those little organisms thrive. And a lot of soil organisms are associated, well, the more the, the bacterial type of organisms associated with plant roots and fungi, and fungi are usually associated with tree roots. So when you create a nice protected soil, and don't forget the other thing is when you have a ground cover covering your covering your soil, if any organic matter gets blown in, things think think of little leaves and little bits and pieces of organic matter, they get captured and trapped by these ground covers and they add to the soil. So essentially the whole point why nature uses ground covers ecologically is as a soil building, soil protecting exercises. So just with that little example, you saw the benefits. The other thing is um, chickweed's edible, and even yep. if you don't like eating that sort of thing, chickens absolutely go crazy over the stuff. We have a growing in our front garden at work at the nursery, and we have some pet chickens there. So what I tend to do, I only work there two days a week, but they know me and they recognize me when I, and they run to me when they <laughs> see me because I know, they know that when I'm coming, I'm going to have a big wad of chickweed. So I've got a hidden stash of chickweed that I don't go weed and I don't tell the, the management where it is. And it's sort of tucked behind some, some of the bushes in the front um, garden. And I will go pick wads of it. And it's an annual, it will die down, it'll self-seed. Perfectly good reason to leave it there, really. It's not doing any harm. The other thing is it's layering forests, have up to seven layers. You think big trees, small trees, shrubs, herbaceous plants below those ones without wood in their stems. Then you have ground cover plants, you have root crops, and you have climbers. So a forest can be comprised of up to seven layers. When you have two layers like the system that you've got there, you're already seeing the benefit. And they're not competing with each other because they have different root depths as well. The chickweed is very shallow rooted. The lettuce will probably only go to about 20 centimetres. That probably sits about 15 or 10 and the chickweed only forms a low layer, the lettuce will be above it. So they're forming two levels. They're not competing with each other. They're actually supporting each other. So it's an amazing observation. Yeah, absolutely. And I chose the chickweed as well because I actually love to eat chickweed. And I'm just sort of, when they, you know, it's the tall poppy syndrome, when one of them gets a little tall, just sort of prune it off and I'll just eat it there and then. Or I'm hoping that one day soon it'll be sort of, densely compacted enough to start harvesting it actually i'm just thinking i'm coming out of the wrong season aren't i so it's probably not it's probably going to be a dead layer in a couple of months but that's all right that's fine too it'll self-seed it'll come back up again so you essentially just work with our nature's seasons that's the really important thing and so what do you reckon i should plant as a ground cover in that little uh in the little tub i've got there for my lettuces once the that chickweed dies down is there something you can recommend even just a weed i don't mind i like edible weeds too what, oh, what do you reckon okay. I plant there? In the, in the warm season, there's purslane. Oh, yeah, big fan Purs- of purslane. It's got, it's got the, uh, you know, the red stems and the really succulent leaves. That is very, very rich in antioxidants, I believe, and lots of other vitamins and minerals. And that looks like essentially succulent, and it actually is a succulent. 
it is really hard. It'll take the heat and it'll self-seed as well. So you can you can actually have both of them and they will probably mm. cycle. That will cycle in during the warm season and the other plants will cycle in during the the chickweed probably come in during the cool season. Um, so if the, if you have like essentially the seed bank in the soil, if the seeds are present in the soil, they will just come up on their own as their season comes in. Love that. Yeah, purslane. That's a great one. Thank you. Yeah, if you wanted something a little bit more permanent, like on the edges, you could always use plants like thyme, culinary thyme, but that doesn't cycle. That is a perennial. It's permanently there. The other thing that I will like, I love growing on my bigger veggie gardens is a little companion plant called alyssum or sweet alyssum, also known as sweet alice. Has little shell, little white, the white variety is the best, attracts the most beneficial insects. It has little tiny white flowers. It's actually from the brassica family. Some people say the leaves are actually edible and they taste very spicy, mustardy, but the, it has little clumps of white flowers and they're very shallow flowers. And because all beneficial insects are your pests in the garden, well, things like ladybirds, lacewings, and hoverflies, or have and parasitic wasps have very shallow, um, very short mouth parts. They need shallow flowers to get into. So when you grow these on the edges, it brings the beneficial insects in. So what they will do, they will eat the nectar. If they find any pests, they'll eat those. Once they've eaten all the pests and they've run out of food, then they can revert back to the nectar. So again, more plants working together. That's a really great point because when we think of you know predator insects or something like that we might think that they're completely carnivorous but they may have multiple life cycles where one part of their life cycle they're eating you know insects and then another part they're feeding on nectar or maybe they're both maybe they're just eating both i mean i i can't think of an insect that i know that uh drinks nectar and eats insects in the same life cycle but you're saying ladybugs do that ladybirds do yeah wow interesting which is really fascinating. With some like the hoverflies, their larvae are predatory. They eat. They love eating aphids. The adults actually resort to they're just nectar feeders, so they they alternate on their life cycle, which is rather rather interesting. So, if you essentially create something that resembles an ecosystem that's going to attract the insects that eat your pests, then they'll hang around. Most people don't realise that if you have a field of lettuce with nothing but lettuce, the only thing that can live there are things that eat lettuce. So it stands to reason that if you put the plants, permanent (laughs) plants in what we call insectary plants, things plants that are permanent, perennial, that stay there forever, that are bushy, that they can live in over winter, you give them a home, just like us. We need a home, we need food. If you, you need to also give them a food source. If there's no bugs around, they eat the nectar. Once the nectar, um, w- once the bugs come, they can eat the bugs. Then they can resort back to nectar afterwards. So if they have a food source and a permanent home, they will hang around. And that's what it is. That's what it means to build an ecosystem to provide the needs of the living organisms that you want to attract into your garden. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We had Ian Smith, who's uh, an extension worker, which means that he sort of consults for. Well, he provides advice to agriculturists in his area uh, Mm. on behalf of the council. And he was saying that in nature, we don't see sort of massive fields of like cauliflower or something like that, really, you know, not at least not in sort of stabilized ecosystems. But, you know, in agriculture, that's what we do. We plant, you know, so many rows of, of cauliflower. And then we wonder why the only thing that wants to live there is a cabbage butterfly. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, um, <laughs> in permaculture, we have a principle called biodiversity, which obviously is quite self-explanatory, which explains that monocultures are unstable because if you planted a whole field of cabbages and you left it, left it for a few years, it won't be just cabbages. Nature will revert it to a mixed mm. system. Whereas, So monocultures are inherently unstable systems and they require a lot of energy and resources to keep them that way. Whereas in a biodiverse ecosystem where you have also the beneficial interactions between plants, over time they become more stable and they become more um, diverse. So that's the whole point with working with nature. If you look at what nature's trying to do and you model that, you will end up gaining some of the leveraging some of the benefits of natural systems because the mechanisms for them to work in that way are already there. The, I used to joke with a friend of mine who was a permaculturist and agriculturist about he, he basically has a huge school garden, which is amazing. He's one of the biggest school kitchen garden systems probably in the state of Victoria. And he is an agriculturist, but he's also a permaculturist as well. And I said to him, oh, what, the only thing that you're missing is a little mini tractor to drive between the rows. And he goes, come on, you know, we just do it for convenience. And I said, yeah, I do. I'm just stirring you up about it. It's essentially geared about convenience. The more convenient a system is, the more it deviates from nature, the more energy it keeps, to, the more energy inputs are required to keep it out of balance, out of equilibrium. When you let things flow into natural equilibrium, they don't require so much energy. So that's why I always say to people, it's always good to have, even if you've just got a regular veggie bed, grow a strip of perennial plants that you don't have to replant, like all your culinary herbs, add some sage, rosemary, you know, culinary thyme, savory or some, or, you know, winter savory or something like that. So you have some permanent plants there. Also look at some perennial veg that you don't need to constantly replant because it saves a lot of energy that way. Yet the diversity makes a hell of a difference. And if you look at the amount of time that goes into maintaining a garden of just annuals, it's very, very time, resource, labor, energy, cost intensive whereas a natural system like i've got a food forest that produces a fair bit it's actually broken some records in terms of outputs compared to like agricultural systems and for me it only takes about two hours to maintain because it is a essentially diverse system there's a lot of perennial plants and like you were saying earlier what Ian smith mentioned I do grow cabbages and broccoli, cauliflower, but they're interspersed through the garden. If a pest that eats cabbages lands in a plot of just straight cabbages, they will just jump from cabbage to cabbage to cabbage to cabbage. But if you have a cabbage over here, over there, and somewhere else, the other thing is it's also a resilient design because it not only makes it harder for insects or predators of these plants to actually find them, but you also create different microclimates. So if you've got... I've noticed it with tomatoes, for example, that if you plant them in a really exposed spot, they will they will peak earliest because they're getting the most sun, but they'll also be the first to die off because they get the most cold once the winter cold temperatures come in. What I find with growing tomatoes in protected positions, they take a little bit longer to come to fruit, but they will continue producing for a very long time. I've actually grown some in tubs against a north-facing wall, which um, retains the heat. And I, mine survived over a year because what I had is the broad beans and a few other plants growing and it fell behind them and they protected it. And I thought, okay, well, we can do this. I, I layered it. I buried some of the stem and we ended up getting about six or seven plants coming up. I basically sort of like zigzagged it with the bendy bits under the soil and anchored them down and it just reshot and ended up with about five or six plants. That way grew those. And what I did, 
to keep them going. And I think they're in their third year now, my tomatoes, because most people don't realize tomatoes are a South American vine yeah. and it's perennial. It's only <laughs> it's only an annual intemperate concert where the cold kills them off. And what I did is put some loosely just hung some greenhouse plastic over in winter and they've survived beautifully. I already, most people say, oh, well, you don't plant your tomatoes till Melbourne Cup. I have a two-metre tomato plant that's three years old and I just cover it up and it's against mesh in it wall growing in, in just essentially a, what is it, it's probably about a 40-litre um, self-watering tub. And it works fine. If you create the uh, conditions that plants require, you will get maximum production out of You'll also get stronger plants that are more resistant to pests. So it just takes a little bit of thinking rather than just following just cookbook recipes. Oh, when I teach gardening, I always teach from first principles. So I explain why we do things. So people just don't follow a cookbook recipe advice on how to do something. They understand why they're doing it. So if they forget what to do, they can remember the reason why they do it and they can figure it out from there. Sort of the difference between being an artist and someone who's painting by numbers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if you actually know what you're doing, the reason why you're doing things, if you have like, yeah, if you're an artist, if you have mastered your materials and you understand how they work, and then you can actually do a lot more. And I find in, there's a lot of, I think one of the biggest pitfalls for new gardeners is that they just don't necessarily fully understand the systems that they're dealing with. In other words, like an artist needs to know their materials. If you're going to paint with you know, oils, you have to understand how oil paints mix and you know their properties and so forth, as opposed to watercolours, for example. Mm-hmm. Similar thing with plants. If you're going to grow certain plants, it pays to actually know their properties. Yeah, sure, you can actually look up books. You can look up YouTube things. You can listen to great podcasts like your own. But the other thing is you can also practice and just gain, learn from experience. Of course, you, you'll make a lot of mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not learning. But the other thing is you don't have to make all the mistakes by just reading up a little bit, getting a, some foundational knowledge and just going out and practicing. And that way you realize what works and what doesn't. And like you yeah. were saying earlier, one of the most distressing things to see is new beginners jumping into gardening and because they've given been given some bad advice or being sold plants out of season and they usually start with, you know, make the mistake of starting with seeds, which are a lot harder than growing from seedlings. And they'll try that and they'll get discouraged because their seeds didn't come up. They might have brought a pack of this, you know, passage to use by or they might have done something wrong or it's a bit too early in the season. And then they just go, oh, I can't do this. I'm just going to give up. And that's terrible. And it's there's nothing more positive for me than having beginners coming into the gardeners who are asking questions about how to do something, blaming themselves for it, and explain to them what went wrong and it wasn't their fault and how they can better do it. And I'll come back a week or two and go, hey, I took your advice and it worked great. My, you know, my plants are up and they're healthy and strong. Thanks for that. And you just see the smile on their face and you go, wow, okay, cool. You know, it was worth coming to work today. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, there are different reasons why someone might want to grow food, especially to eat. Like mm. some people are looking to you know, save money. I don't see my my backyard veggie garden as a, as a place to save money. I mean, I spent $50 recently on a bacterial biological control, which is designed, well, it's not designed, it's designed by nature to yeah. eat, to eat my, to eat my uh, fungus gnat larvae. So ah, yeah, yeah, I'm sinking money into this. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah, exactly that. the one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the, I think it's a variety Israeliensis that does that as opposed to variety Kust, uh, uh, Kust, 
Kirsten Taki or whatever it is, which is used for a different purpose, which is used for caterpillars. Uh, yet the, I was about to say, yeah, indoor plants, another whole thing, there's been a big boom in indoor in, interest in indoor plants. Either way, whether you're growing for food, growing for interest, growing to skill yourself up or just doing it out of curiosity or boredom, it's actually a healthy thing because it connects it with nature. You actually realize that, how do you put this, you not only get to appreciate where your food comes from and how much trouble it takes to actually grow it, but you also see the cycles of nature. And with annual plants, with your veggies, they only live, you know, an annual means it lives for only a year, but most of them don't even live that. You know, they'll only be cool or warm season plants. So you plant them, start a spring by sort of mid-autumn, they're gone. So you, you see the whole cycle from seed, seedling, you know, small plant, you know, seed plant mature, fruit, go to seed and then die off. And you actually understand then how plants interact with the seasons and with nature and what the difference cold weather and warm weather makes to plants and so forth. And you get to appreciate part of the bigger world. It's too easy to get caught up in our artificial world and all our, ah, what's the word, man-made concerns. But ultimately, we do get to realise that there is there are living systems in there Sorry, there are living systems in on the sorry, the planet is comprised of living systems. Those living systems are also affected by climate, climate change for that matter, and everything's intricately entwined with the cycles of nature and nothing's above them. If we work our nine to five cycle, whether it doesn't matter whether it's spring, summer, autumn, or winter, we wake up at the same time, we go to work at the same time, we come home at the same time, and so forth. And we're in artificial lighting all day. We don't even get to see the difference of where the sun is in the, on the horizon at different parts of the year or any of that. We don't see how the both how life responds through the seasonal changes of the year and also how it responds year to year as we go through climatic change. So when you actually grow your plants, you go, oh bugger, you know, we didn't our summer was really short this year. We didn't really have much of a summer, so my tomatoes didn't ripen, only my cherry tomatoes ripen because, you know, the fruit's small and they have a much shorter ripening season. But my big gross lease, for example, my big huge super tomatoes did not really do that well because they didn't get to ripen in time. Or my pumpkins didn't ripen because we didn't get enough warmth this year. You get to appreciate how what the impact of both seasonal and long-term cycles are on life on the planet and therefore humans and human food systems. But like you said, not everyone's going to save that much money, but I saw a study that was um, conducted in the US, it must have been, I can't remember the exact year, it must have been probably about a decade ago, where I think the Americans were investing about $70 in materials or something like that and producing about $500 of plants so and that was it's roughly with a 60 square meter garden which is about the size of my own garden but one thing i always say to people don't discount the impact that you have if you've only got one i, I got into this funny discussion or I suppose you can call it a almost an argument on oh, what's that rural radio program called i forget the name of it abc and they had they were talking about yeah yeah i think it was one, one of those and i think that was the one and it was about food security because what's the government reported, basically released some report, this is a few years back, about food security and the concern that with climate change and everything else that we won't have enough food to feed the population. Even though currently we export two-thirds of our food, we won't have enough food in the future to feed a growing population with 
potential reductions due to um, soil erosion plus climate change combined. Soil erosion is a more major one, by the way. Most people don't realise that because with no soil, you can't grow food. And I think we're losing at least a millimetre or more of soil a year. And it takes about a century to build about two centimetres of soil or thereabouts, depending on who you ask and what your climate is. But And I was just invited as the token community garden person, which is rather amusing. And the guy was talking about, oh, how we have to do this, we have to do that. Essentially, the answer was, hey, we'll just start creating lots of GMO crops and we'll just try to make up the numbers that way. But the, the reality is the um, figures don't add up. We've been looking at what the impact of GMO crops has been and it hasn't really increased production to any significant extent that's going to save anybody or anything. Plus, it ties us into a lot of other corporate, what's the call? Um, how would you say it? We end up being beholden to a lot of corporations over a lot of things then, and it's, it's a really bad solution. But anyway, and the, guy, the guy was trying to uh, minimise the value of community gardens, and I just said to him, well, do you realise that it doesn't matter whether one acre is – one acre is 4,000 square metres. It doesn't matter if you if that one-acre plot is comp- is one, one single large one-acre plot or – or 4,000 single one square metre plots, <laughs> it still produces the same amount. And he goes, oh, no, but it's not really that much. I said, oh, well, I had to tell you this, but do you realise that the American home garden sector produces way larger crop yields and to a greater dollar value than all of Australian agriculture put together? And he goes, oh, oh but there's, there's a lot more of them. Well, okay, well, there's about a million people you know living in each big city if if each one of those people grew one square meter that's a million square meters it all adds up because what most people don't realize and this is really important any small scale garden you can manage way more intensively than you can agricultural land other than the fact that you need a big wide tractor run tractors through or so forth or large areas of you know, space to run machinery or or paths for people with a small system Area for area, it's about four times more productive. So think of it this way. For every square metre of garden that you have at home, you're saving four square metres of bushland. Hmm. And that's a good way to think about that. Especially when you're talking about these multi-layers and stories, you know, you can have creepers growing on trees, etc. But Angela, I want to ask you, so you're a man of science, you're a man of numbers. Yes. What are your numbers looking like in terms of your yield? Okay, well, with my food forest system, which is in a 60 square meter garden bed area, well, to give you a bit, to give you the figures from to give you some perspective, I live on a 600 square meter block, which is probably what you call a medium mediumish sized block, and of that 150 square meters of is backyard. Of the 150 square meters, there's 80 square meters of garden. Of the 80 square metres of garden, if you deduct the paths, because I always have paths because I never step in the gardens, that's part of no-dig gardening, we have about 63 square metres of garden bed. Now, within the 63 square metres of garden bed, we have over 30 fruit trees, we have 22 types of berries, and we have somewhere between 50 to 80 types of medicinal and culinary herbs. Now, in that space... And I'm not really one person to make a huge effort in growing my veggies, even though I do write gardening calendars. I used to write the gardening calendar for um, Permaculture Victoria. Doing, a, what's the word, without using any vulgar language, doing a sort of a, sem, a semi-committed effort to growing veggies, 
I could produce usually about 70 kilos of veggies a year. And that's not stacking the figures with root crops by planting lots of spuds or anything dodgy like that. And I'm not, and with my harvests, I normally don't count herbs and stuff. And I usually underestimate because people just come and eat things anyway. I think I was basically, I monitored all my harvests for the first four years of planting. Okay, so these are my exact figures. So the first year I had about 133 kilos of produce. Second year, 204 kilos of produce. Third year, 196 kilos of produce. So it was a drop. And that's the reason we had a bit of a minor disaster there. My two biggest, most mature fruit trees got blown down before the crop was actually ripened. And we basically lost all of those. And the fourth year, we had 234 kilos of produce. So we're getting about 20 kilos of produce a month on average. That is insane for a 60 square meter block. Yeah. And the thing is, the reason why the figures were initially on the lower side is because the trees were establishing, even after the four years, only two thirds of the fruit trees had established. And I hadn't planted all the types of berries at that point. And if I break the figures down, the, on the fourth year, we had about 11 kilos of berries, which is quite significant. Jeez, that's a lot of berries. Yeah, we had six kilos of raspberries. Now, if you look at a punnet, which is about 100 and something odd grams, I calculated that to be about $180 worth of raspberries. <laughs> now, you can do things like that that you could not possibly, you know, that would not be viable to actually just go out and purchase. That was, mm-hmm. I think it was about 30 odd punnets of raspberries or something crazy. Now, with veggies, like I said, the figures varied between 60 to 75 kilos a year, uh, depending on how much effort I made. And the fruit, we had about 160 um, kilos of fruit in the final year with only two-thirds of the trees established there. Now, with this whole system, most people don't realise, um, 234 kilos out of 64 square metres works out to approximately 14.7 Nine six, or basically almost 14.8 tonnes, sorry, kilograms per acre. So if I extended my garden over an acre, I'll be able to produce nearly 15 15 tonnes of food. How does that compare to normal agricultural systems? Yeah, well, well, in terms of hectares, it's about 36.5 tonnes per hectare. So apparently, according to some figures that I heard, from another organization, which alerted me to the fact that my figures were significant. Apparently, dry land wheat only get about eight, I think it was about two to four tons per acre or something. And so I'm getting, was it about 15 tons per acre? So I'm I'm outstripping Australian agricultural systems by orders of magnitude and at least double what any European system is producing almost. So it's quite significant. The difference is though with this garden it's all no dig. It's stage 3A water-wise, which means it only gets two waterings a week of 45 minutes. For six months of the year, it's only rainwater fed. With, with, uh, with, um, with, I've got 2,000 litres of, which isn't much, of storage capacity in recycled plastic drums, which I catch and I use. So mm-hmm. it's only running off those and rainwater off the 30-square-metre garage with not even the house plus the natural rainwater falling in the garden for six months of the year. The other six months, it's two waterings a week, plus the plus the rainwater in the tanks, which is not much storage at all. The On top of that, as I mentioned, it's no dig, so it takes two hours 
a week to maintain the whole thing. It's all natural pest control as well. No, other than snails and slugs, we don't have really any other pests at all. So the whole thing basically is a self-managing living ecosystem. And to top it all off, um, it can be doled up and be a show garden as well, which I I can't say that for many farms nor many straight veggie plots because we um, actually being part of Australian Open Gardens scheme, I remember Jane Edmondson from ABC Gardening Australia actually told people about it and said she'll drop in and she's an amazing lady. Way, way taller than um, you imagine as well. She's very stately <laughs> as well. It was almost like um, we had a crowd going out from my garden all the way out to the front fence out in the footpath, and it's almost like a sea parted, like Moses parting the ocean, and this stately, <laughs> very serene lady walked in, and I go, oh, my goodness, that's Jane Edmondson. And she told everybody about it, and we got flooded the next day as well. And the whole thing is it's not hard to dress it up to be a show garden because it's not just veggies. There's fruit trees. There's, there's also lots of flowers in there. The flowers aren't just ornamental. They attract lots of beneficial insects. They attract pollinators, bees, and so forth, and other beneficial insects depending on the type of flower. So it all, it's, it's essentially a multi-sensory system. It's not in any way grown to stack the figures or just put straight produce out. Some of the plants are actually ornamental. I have lots of things like night-scented trees, for example, two of them which give you an added element because, remember, taste is only one of our five Mm. senses. (laughs) We still have another four more plus what happens at night. You know, when you go out, to have a garden filled with fragrance at night adds to that dimension. So what we're designing is a multi-sensory garden here because in permaculture of this principle, everything serves more than one purpose. And here, it's essentially, it's a therapeutic garden, it's, it's good exercise, produces a fair bit of um, produce, and it's also somewhere where you can go and interact with nature and just observe nature and learn from it. Most people were frustrated when we had our lockdowns when the, for COVID when it first started. And I do a lot of macro photography. That's close-up photography of insects and bugs and flowers and stuff like that. Literally on my Instagram, other than probably about three photos, there's two years' worth of photography just of what's in my backyard. So if you, in science, we have the tool of observation. In permaculture, we talk about observation, going out and looking for things, looking to learn from your garden. It's amazing what you find when you look. Sometimes I would just go looking to photograph flowers, having a macro lens, a big fancy lens, which will magnify things and show you details they can't normally see. I'll put it up on the computer screen and go, hold on, what's that little bug there? I didn't know that existed or I've never seen that before. Go back out, go, what is that little critter? You know, then go take a photo of that. I find all these little little critters in the garden I never knew were there. And sometimes I'll go out to take photos of one thing and discover other things. It's just amazing when you stop and look, just what's literally below your feet, what you discover in your garden. And that's because what we're creating is a living ecosystem that supports life. The whole point, like I said, soil isn't just dirt, it's a whole living ecosystem. When you put whole, create a layered ecosystem of plants around that, then you attract lots of life. And as my teacher, Jeff Lawton, who was, because I studied permaculture with Bill Mollison and Jeff Lawton back in 2008, Bill Mollison was one of the co-founders of the system of permaculture. David Holmgren was the other co-founder. He lives in Hepburn Springs in Victoria now. Bill has since passed and passed the baton on to Jeff Lawton. 
And Jeff Lawton's done some pretty amazing ecological gardening work, you know, permaculture design. He's got a um, project called Greening the Desert in Jordan. That's literally what it, what it says. It's essentially a project where he went to the Jordanian desert and created food production areas there. And they get very little rainfall. What little water they actually have for irrigation is actually saline water. And he's managed to create systems. And you can see the before and after photos. And you can just see these big sweeping sand dunes. And then you see all the little dots of green. And eventually this whole, you know, forested, greened up landscape areas. And they grow veggies, fruit trees, you name it. It's amazing what you can do when you work with nature. We always say, though, in permaculture, Unlike agriculture, which is resource and energy intensive, permaculture is knowledge and imagination intensive. So it takes a little bit of learning and it takes a little bit of creativity as opposed to pouring money or fossil fuels into things. So, And like you said, with the fungus gnats, you, you can surely for your indoor plants, you can use the... Um, the BT bacteria, which does a great job. The other thing you can do is you can let the surface dry and put a pebble mulch. They're little fungus gnats, and you could also reduce the watering because fungus gnats, they respond to high levels of fungal growth in organic mediums. In other words, if you've been overwatering your potting mix, it starts rotting, they lay their eggs in it, the little grubs, their little larvae, will eat the the fungi in the soil, but they'll also eat some of your plant roots. Yeah. So there's also, in, when we, I practice a system, another scientific system called integrated pest management, otherwise known as IPM. And what we do with that system, we never come look to one solution and we never go the last resort solution. What we do, it's a stepped and um, combined multi-pronged approach where we combine different measures. Like we have Say so one measure might be 5% effective, another one might be 20% effective, another one might be 35% effective, another one might be 70% effective, and we combine them all. Some of them are cultural controls, so we don't have to add anything. We just change the way we do things, and we slowly look to see how these are affecting it. We, so we, we, we implement them in a systematic approach, I should say, and we look at how they're responding, and we keep the, the big guns which are usually the chemical controls. Biological controls are a good one, which we've utilised, but they can be expensive. Um, but chemical controls are usually the last resort. And that way we've, if if we, because the problem is if you go for the big guns first and they fail, you've got nowhere left to go. So there's there's a good, good reason to have a strategic approach to doing things in gardening, especially in pest control, but that's another whole topic in itself. Yeah, and we've covered IPM a little bit. We've done an episode on it. I mean, I would never say that we've covered it. But I guess, you know, when we're talking about these ecosystems, these are things that evolve over time. Yes, very much. Okay, so let's just say we want to get the the quickest profit out of a piece of land. We're going to approach it differently than if we want to build a home that is a permanent sort of agricultural setting. You know, I guess that's where the word permaculture comes from. Yes, permanent agriculture, basically, yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about your first year, you got, you know, like a less yield. Okay. Yes. The fruit trees fell over this, that, and the other, but every year subsequently, you know, you're probably adding more plants, that ecosystem's getting more diverse. Those plant roots in the, in the perennial plants, they're getting deeper. Mm. These things, they compound over time, don't they? Yes, that's true. One thing that people have to be aware of is that living systems grow and evolve and stabilize over time. 
I remember I used to basically brew up my own organic pest control formulations. And I've got a whole stack of recipes on my website if anyone's interested. And with those, I used to spray away. And every time I used to see pests, brew up my natural pest controls and spray them and get rid of the pests. Like if I had aphids, what my teacher, Jeff Lawton, said about natural pest control is if you create a balanced ecosystem, what will happen is you'll have the rise of pests, but then you'll have the rise of predators established and they'll keep each other and the the predators will keep the pests in check. Never aim for total elimination, just like what they say in in creative pest management in IPM. You will reduce them down to a manageable level where they're not going to have any significant harm. Create any significant harm or do any significant damage. And I remember when I first stopped for six months my garden exploded with pests. And I think, oh, my goodness. <laughs> What's all the first month that exploded and it eased off a tapered down month after month by about six months, it had basically cleaned itself up. And I realised, okay, so I've, it was the temptation to go and just brew up some, you know, organic white oil or something like that or just use some, what's it called, some natural horticultural soap or something like that or some neem soap or neem oil or something like that and spray the little buggers. But I resisted, I held off and it established over time. That's the whole thing. Nature has all natural, one thing I did learn in biology is that all natural systems, whether it's a human body or it's a whole forest system, they all have this tendency towards stability. And that that property is called homeostasis where they always will tend towards a stable state because all living things need a stable state or stable conditions to thrive in. So they all have their own natural balance mechanisms. You have to give them time. That's the important thing. So exactly like what you were saying earlier, my system slowly evolved over time. They say that what the whole gist of a permaculture food forest is it's purely based on the principle of what we call ecological succession. It's a principle in ecology where if you left a patch of bare dirt untouched for 150, about 50 to 150 years, it will turn into a temperate forest in the temperate climate, that is. Because you get all the things we call weeds that will stabilise the soil, that things will, uh, other plants will grow in the added organic matter that they add, plus they'll create more of a stable you know, microclimate, and which will allow less resilient things to grow in it progressively, eventually, Bigger and bigger plants will grow. Then you get your pioneer trees, which are the trees that all sort of start off larger systems in Australian native forests. That's what acacias are. The reason why they live for six years and they're nitrogen fixing, they like beans, they can create their own nitrogen fertilizer because they've got little rhizobium bacteria in their roots. The reason why they, their whole purpose ecologically, they go into systems that can't support the big climax canopies like your eucalypts, for example. And they will stabilize the ground. They will, they will shade out all the other little weedy plants and shrubby plants below them that have stabilized the bare soil. And they will also add a lot of nitrogen to the soil. All their organic matter will drop down. And then they will also act as what we call nurse, uh, nurse trees or nursery trees, which will protect the seedlings of the eucalypts, for example, and they'll come up. So plants will protect the stages of the plants that come after them that are less resilient. And as that happens over the 50 to 150 years, the soil profile will build up as the plants deposit all their organic matter. Now, what happens in a in an agricultural system, this is just the logic and the rationale of it, and you see just the insanity of it. Nature's driven by a big nuclear reactor in the sky. It's a big fusion <laughs> reactor called the sun. And for all intent and purposes, its energy is infinite. Now, what humans are doing is 
they, whenever they see the soil, they try to revert it back to bare soil. What nature's trying to do is fill it out to either create a temperate forest or some other ecological system that will cover the soil and create a stable ecosystem. So if you push the opposite way, you have to use fossil fuels and resources and the sun comes out and and the wind blows in all the weeds and it just pushes it back again. So it's a never-ending cycle, which is essentially just pouring useful energy, non-renewable energy resources such as fossil fuels down the drain. Now, what we do in permaculture is we go, what happens if we push in the same direction? Nature wants to fill it out. Why don't we just fill it out? But instead of filling it out over 50, 150 years, whatever nature randomly decides to blow in, let's pick the species strategically and plant them and create that system and plant it all up as much as the conditions will permit. Hopefully we can do it all in the first year, if not do it over many years. But ultimately, we end up creating a stable system in 10 years. So what nature looks to do in 50 to 150 years, we create in essentially 10 years. So what we call this system is accelerated succession or accelerated ecological succession. We're putting our energy to push in the same direction. We're just picking the species. That's all that's, all that's involved. And of course, once it's once it once you hit that 10-year mark, which mine does, mine has, sorry, it ends up a very, very stable system and you don't really have to do too much because nature is geared around maintaining stacked systems which have a very biodiverse sort of representation where plants can beneficially interact with each other or protect each other or create conditions where they will be much more resilient than they would normally would create on their own. So Whereas in agriculture, what we're doing is we're constantly clearing the soil, but we're not also – when you build the soil um, and you have that rich soil food web ecosystem, just like your gut when you have antibiotics and you wiped out all your good gut bacteria and then you have to take all those little tablets, like the lactobacillus tablets, to reestablish a culture of healthy bacteria which stop all the bad bugs in your gut. When you have a healthy soil ecosystem, they tend to outbalance all the diseases – They they're basically, well, well, they dilute them out, all the um, pathogenic organisms, because they essentially outcompete them. Now, if you destroy your soil ecology, then it, it's just an open invitation for soil diseases to come through. Plus, the plants are roughing it out on their own, and they're dependent on humans to feed them rather than the soil to feed them. One of the most important um, principles of permaculture is feed the soil, not the plants. <laughs> you, can't, you can't actually feed plants directly. The way nature works is you put down organic matter, the soil food where breaks it down and turns it into nutrient forms that are available to plants and the plants then take them up. If you put synthetic fertilizers down, which are essentially mineral salt solutions, the plant drinks it's forced to eat. It, when it's forced to eat, it's forced to grow, produces lots of soft, sappy growth, which is not very resilient to pest attack and the pests absolutely just decimate it. So that's also a good reason why you shouldn't be using liquid mineral salt fertilizers, i.e. synthetics, because they really mess up the ecology. Plus, they salt out soil bacteria and kill a lot of them too, which is not a good thing. So, Angelo, I just would like to know, what have you learned in the last year or two that has sort of changed the way you're doing what you're doing in an urban agricultural sort of aesthetic? Is there anything that you've learned that maybe people who sort of beyond that beginner level might you know, might, might just change the way that people are thinking about it. Yeah, um, well, one thing's, well, particularly, it's, well, for me, it's been a constant learning process since 2002 when I started organic gardening. But one of the things that I've noticed um, quite distinctly in the last year or two is essentially the effect of climate. 
and seasonal changes. Right. One of the things that even being an experienced gardener, I find certain things are very, very hard to grow. If you're having trouble growing, say, tomatoes, just realise that when we have a spring that comes very late, a very short summer, and a quick turn into autumn, then you have very a very limited growing window there. And certain plants that take a very long period to grow will take will not really do that well, to put it bluntly. So what I've realized is that you look when you look at any plant label, any like seed or punnet label, it'll say, it'll say weeks to harvest. And it'll say, you know, like seven to eight weeks or, you know, it might be 10 to 12 weeks or, you know, 18 to 22 weeks, whatever, depending on the plant that it is. But I find that any of the um, the dwarf varieties of plants, like, or say um, any plant like a cherry tomato, which produces a smaller fruit that ripens quicker or a smaller growing plant, um, fruiting plant like a pumpkin, say, like a lot of people think, okay, wouldn't it be great to grow like a giant Queensland blue pumpkin, those big monster pumpkins? Well, they, the reason why they call called the Queensland blue is they probably grow better in Queensland because <laughs> you need a lot of heat to ripen because once a pumpkin, the only time when a, pumpkins don't ripen off the vine, if the step, you know when to harvest a pumpkin when you essentially see a dry stem on the pumpkin. If your stem's not dry, then you can't. it's not ready and it won't ripen off the vine anyway. So if you have a huge pumpkin, it's going to take a nice, long, hot summer to ripen the thing. If you grow something small, like a little one of those little tiny pumpkins, the little baby ones, or something like a butternut pumpkin, for example, which is a lot smaller, it'll ripen much quicker. If you have something that, can, that continuously crops, um, like, say, a cherry tomato, which is a vining tomato, because most people don't realise, say, a bush tomato has to grow all to one size and it fruits all at once, whereas the vining types, the indeterminate ones as we call them, they, as opposed to the bush ones, which are the determinate types, the indeterminate vining type of tomatoes, as long as they keep on growing, they keep on producing. And if the tomatoes are small, they constantly crop. And so also being cherry tomatoes, they have a bigger, stronger root system. If anyone's ever seen grafted tomatoes and you pay a fair bit for those, it's just a regular tomato grafted onto a cherry tomato rootstock using an approach graft where just two roots joined together. So cherry tomato is a lot more resilient. So if you're growing, say, you want to get a good crop of tomatoes, grow your cherry tomatoes as insurance in case you get a bad summer. Mm. If you're going to want to grow pumpkins, grow the ones that are smaller because if we get a really bad summer, they'll, they won't work. If you want to start get maximum production out of your plants, grow them near warm north or west facing walls this is for your warm season crops because um, you'll extend the growing season because the walls will heat, soak up heat during the day and put emit it will radiate it out at night time so nighttime temperatures won't be so low so they'll last a lot longer it's really important to maximize the growing conditions when the growing conditions are less than ideal one thing i've noticed since 2002 when i started gardening the weather, you ask any gardener, because when you garden year after year, you notice the seasonal trends and you notice the long-term trends. Our weather has become a lot more unpredictable. The season's a lot more volatile and less reliable. 
and it makes which all make for growing warm season veggies all that harder. So yeah. you should also to give maximize your growing season, start your warm season plants inside in August, i.e. last month. By the time they're ready to plant out, because you've been growing them indoors and planting up into bigger pots, you'll have very big plants which you can put out, which are a lot more resilient to both pests and sudden weather changes. But be be aware of the sudden weather changes. We can have warm weather, then sudden frosts, or we can have cold weather, then sudden heat. Uh, always protect your veggies if you're going to see a drastic change in weather if one's forecast. So when you are growing veggies and you have a stake in the survival of your little veggie seedlings, you start monitoring the weather and you become more aware of the seasonal changes a lot more. So that's really, really important. I think it's, if anything, people should, if they're, especially if they're beginners, look to grow also the easiest plants possible. Don't go for the hardest, most exotic things you can find, especially with fruit trees for that matter, you know, but with... Just go for the plants that are always going to give you easy yields. You know, things like a lot of your leafy vegetables will grow in part shade as well, especially a lot of people don't have much space to grow food. And with the high density of urban housing these days, which is another big issue, you might not have that much sun. You have a lot more sun in summer because the sun's directly overhead. And at midday, it's a lot lower on the horizon in midday and winter. So if you've got shade, all your leafy greens can be grown in, in those areas. So if you have areas that don't get too much direct sun, you can grow all your leafy green vegetables. Think silver beet, spinach, lettuce, all of those things, including herbs like parsley. And it's got leafy green growth where you use the leaves. Now, if, you're, if, you, if you've got sort of moderate shade, moderate sun, halfway in between, all your root crops can thrive in about four to six hours of direct sun or partial shade. Your leafy greens can actually cope with about four hours of sun. And you, anything that flowers or fruits, and you go, what veggies flower? Broccolis and cauliflowers. The reason why we, they're called florets is because they're actual flowers that you're eating. But anything else that flowers and fruits, think of tomatoes, eggplants, chilies, capsicums, you know, zucchinis, they all flower and fruit. Now, all of those need a minimum of six hours of sun, you know, usually six to eight hours of sun, preferably eight hours of direct sun. So if you grow things with the right amount of light, because plants only plants basically need three things. They need water, they they need sunlight, and they need the minerals from the soil. So the important thing, I guess, I'd have to probably also state that other than just getting putting the plants in the right locations in the gardens where they're going to get amount, the right amount of light and watering them often enough as they need it, which isn't too hard. Well, the second one isn't that hard. You have to know your plants and know how much sun they need, which I've just explained. But the other thing is that veggies are all mostly annuals and annuals are heavy feeders. They have to go from seed to a full plant that's producing its own seeds in, in under a year. To do that, they need a lot of nutrients so the important thing is to restore the soil nutrients. What I always advise new beginner gardeners, feed your garden in spring, the start of spring, which is September, and once for your warm season crops, then feed your garden again in autumn, start of autumn, which is March, for your cool season crops. So what we want to do is we want to restore the soil fertility. 
restore the nutrients that the, the plants have taken out because the heavy feeders that take a lot of nutrients. So ideally, we just use something like cow manure or some other kind of balanced fertilizers or some of those fertilizer plants, which have got a combination of manures and other ingredients. I normally just use cow manure and some seaweed extract. And the, the, one of the biggest sore points for any horticulturist is when someone says they feed their garden with seaweed extract. It's not a fertilizer. It's, a, <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially a plant tonic. It's got the amazing range of there's an amazing range of minerals in there so think of it as a source of trace elements there's only potassium is the only nutrient because of the way that it's produced because they use caustic potash it's a bit like caustic soda that you to unblock your drains they just basically get large vats of um caustic soda throw in all this dried seaweed it just digests it and then that way that's how you that's the reason why it's not potassium but it's full of plant growth hormones called cytokinins so wherever you're planting new veggies water them in with a little bit of seaweed extract just put about two capfuls cap c-a-p not c-u-p into a big nine liter watering can that will water about two to four square meters so that will give them a good head start it'll stimulate their root growth mm. but the Important thing, feed at the start of every season. So you can either go balance fertilizer pellets or something like any kind of manure plus, say, seaweed or just potash, potassium sulfate, sulfate of potash, whatever you want to call it. That's also organically allowed. And I prefer the seaweed because you get a lot more for the effort that you're putting it in because you're getting all these other beneficial compounds in there, all the, all the trace elements plus the cytokines, like I mentioned. But Definitely feed your garden at the start of every season. Replace the nutrients. So if your soil's compacted, though, it becomes lifeless. If if you can't push your hands through your soil, your seedlings can't push their roots through either. So you need to restore the soil structure, create what we call a friable soil, a really loose soil with nice open structure. The way we do that, we just use compost. Simple formula, add twice as much compost as you do manure. So if you've got a big garden bed, you say you want to add so you've got a large garden bed and you want to restore the soil structure and you want to replace the nutrients, well, you put twice as much compost as you do manure. So say if I'm going to put one bucket of cow manure, I'll put two buckets of compost and I dig it through. That's if you're doing a dig-style garden as opposed to a no-dig, which is what I do. And then plant straight into that. That's all you need to do. Ideally, you don't really need to mulch until probably around November when the weather warms up. And it's important to mulch it because seedlings have very shallow root systems. And furthermore, veggies have very shallow root systems. 80% of all, basically most annual veggie, annual veggies, 80% of their roots are in the first 30 centimetres of soil. So once you get deeper than that, you won't find terribly much roots as anyone who's um, pulled a plant out can attest to. Mm. So the idea is to water them nice and deeply so to pull their roots down but keep it mulched because they can dry out very quickly on the surface. Rejuvenate your soil every spring, start of spring, September, rejuvenate at the start of autumn, which is March, twice as much compost as manure. And that's that's a, once you do that and plant your seedlings, and if you put them in a spot where they get enough sun to suit the type of crop that they are, like I said, with um, leafy greens, four hours of direct sun, um, root crops four to six, and flowering fruiting crops six minimum, six to eight ideally, 
you will not have that much trouble. Now, all you need to do is just keep the pests off them. A simple way to keep the pests off them is just throw some insect netting over, which is the only legal netting that you can actually buy these days. If you can stick your little pinky through the net hole, you're not allowed anymore. The reason why government banned that was even though birds couldn't get caught in that, I believe microbats were getting caught into that. But the insect netting provides 20% shade, stops your plants getting burnt, just put some sticks in so it's well above the plants not touching them. Yeah. It'll keep all the all the pests out, and that's all you need to do. It's not too hard. That's a little crash course in garden. Yeah, that was wild. That was a lot of knowledge. And so I guess that this is how someone like you can produce these massive yields because it's just down to education. Yeah, purely the... If you look at traditional, and it's, it's really a reflection on how our societies function. If you look at traditional societies, you had the older people teaching the younger people. Usually it was the grandparents teaching the grandkids. And, you know, practices that were used in communities to, you know, grow food, i.e. In, increase resilience in the community and self-sufficiency in communities. Because I also I'll digress and say that the best an individual can hope for is self-reliance. Self-sufficiency is a function of communities. But what you can do as an individual is work to become more self-reliant or work with other people to become more self-sufficient. And what people used to do, they used to pool their knowledge, their resources, and share what they knew. And they and things got passed from generation to generation or village to um, or virtually from all the members of the village to all the members of the village. And that's knowledge was perpetuated, but because we've sort of um, come away from food growing, it's almost, at one point, it was almost taboo to actually grow veggies in your front garden. Only only migrants would do that, I think, in the 1970s and 80s, and people would go, oh, look, look at the migrant garden, they're growing veggies in their front garden. So it's like you see every 20-year-old Aussie um, person is growing veggies in their front garden for good reason. They can see the wisdom of doing that. Mm. It's important to perpetuate that knowledge and once you have this generational gap where the previous generation absolutely did not want to grow food and it's weird some of the biases against growing food i remember one, i had a having a permaculture demonstration garden i used to get lots of people from overseas wanting to come over because they saw videos of my garden and things like that and wanted to come and see it one girl came from turkey and she had a friend in australia that she was living with and she said I told my parents that they, oh, I want to grow food, and they I disagreed. And I said, what, what, "What's their problem with it?" She goes, "That's what poor people do." Yeah, yeah. So I thought, <laughs> "Wow." So there's a, there's there's a, <laughs> now that the stigma of food growing is actually vanishing, and a lot of people are getting into it. It's important to share that knowledge. A lot can be gained through firsthand experience, but the important thing is also look to reliable sources of knowledge, and you know look look to see what resonates with you and go and try it out. That's the best way to learn. And once you try it out and it works, then if you've got something that you know works, share it with your friends. Tell them, hey, did you know I tried this and I managed to get a great tomato crop? Or did you know that you know if I, if you bring your chilies indoors over winter, they survive and they can keep on going another year? Or you know if you chop the flowers off your silver beet, hey, you know even though it's an annual, you'll get another year out of it, something like that, you know. It's the little things that people share with each other. That it's also community building. It's it's creating a pool of knowledge that people share. And I think one thing that the COVID outbreak has shown us is the importance of well, how insignificant having four hundred Facebook friends is, and how important the people in your life are, and how much how little your everyday nine to five job where doesn't really have any 
meaning and the bigger sort of scope of things matters and how your family and your friends and the immediate people around you that you care for matter a hell of a lot more and also your quality of life and you know once you have all your sort of pointless consumerist um, distractions taken away from you then you sort of have to gaze into the abyss within and realize that you know all the all the crap that I've been buying to keep myself off my um meaningless existence hasn't really worked and you start really thinking about things a lot deeper and when you start reconnecting with people, you realise what people in your life matter and what does matter. And when you go out and garden, you realise that nature does matter and we're connected to all life and we all share the same fate on the planet. It sort of opens up a big, big picture and you go, wow. And you start connecting with people and sharing what you know, and what you've learned, and you realise, hey, this makes a difference. This does matter. I'm helping other people do something that connects them with nature, which helps them live more sustainably or moves them more towards a healthier lifestyle, gives them an interesting, more productive hobby that just de-stresses them. And there's many benefits, um, both men, you know, physical, psychological, that have been documented. I've even written articles with lots of lists of um, so references to medical, you know, scientific journals and other research papers on the topic. You know, there is so many benefits. And I think the 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 best thing that can come out of gardening is that people reconnect to each other and to nature. And that's the two things that we've lost with this, um, with where our society sort of, in my perspective, has derailed and has um, valued all the wrong things and emphasised all the wrong things. And as we sort of start building closer ties with each other and with nature, I think that's going to build they're the that's the construction of the foundations for a more sustainable, resilient system that will exist beside the existing system. So should anything happen to the way we do things currently, there's a good chance that there'll be something left over which people can resort to. But also, if you want to change the world, because Bill Mollison was a real sort of revolutionary in his thinking, and he always said that growing food is the most seditious thing you can do, but it's quite sedition, which is a really interesting quote. And if you really <laughs> want to change the world, go out and build the systems that people can actually see working. Because nothing speaks louder than seeing. Seeing is believing. I heard so many people come into my garden, even permaculture people who have been doing permaculture for 10, 20, 30 years before I was doing it. And they said, I didn't realise you can pack so many plants in close together. I'm going to go back and plant twice as much in my garden now. I said, yeah, the reason why is because the way traditional mm. gardens taught, it's English gardening where they have an excess of water and not enough light. So you space your plants apart to get enough light and you don't have to worry about the soil drying out because there's too much water. We've got the opposite here. We have not enough water and too much sun. So you can put your plants closer together. They'll cover up the bare soil. It'll stop the weeds growing and it'll save water. And it's amazing how your perspective changes when you think about things. Don't take things on face value. Always ask, why are we doing this? That's what American engineer who turned garden guru and he's got one of the best-selling gardening books in the US um, did. He's an engineer who the story was that he went to a gardening class, community gardening class, and the trainer didn't rock up. So he just said to everyone, why don't we just go to learn some, a little bit ourselves, come back and share it with each other, and we'll teach each other each week. And they just did that, and eventually they all taught themselves gardening. And he, what he did was always ask why. Why am I doing this, and is there a better way to do this? And when you do that and you discover things and you share them with people, because one of the permaculture principles, you know, we have three. The weird thing about permaculture, it's basically 
an applied science, but it has ethical principles, unlike many sciences, um, which are basically um, which which are, they're not they're neither anti-ethical or ethical. They're just basically don't have any ethics because it's not part of the system. We have just care for the planet, care for the people, which is self-explanatory, and the one called um, fair share where third principle of fair share just basically states you either you don't use more than your fair share of resources that way there's enough for everybody and you also share your surplus with nature and with your community and what your resources aren't comprised of just physical resources they're also comprised of your experience which is valuable so as you gain experience you can share that with the people that you know that are that are in your world immediate world and if they're interested in gardening, they'll benefit too. The other thing you can do is share seeds that have been grown in your area. If you save the seeds of, say, your tomato plants or your eggplants or your chilies, whatever it is, year after year after year, you'll select. And what you, the simple way to do that is you just select the biggest, strongest um, fruit that gets produced in the year and it gets produced first. Those are going to be the plants that produce first with the biggest fruit, obviously. So if you do that year after year, they'll be perfect. You'll be picking for the strongest plants that are basically adapted to your area. Now, if you share those with other people as well, you'll build a pool of resilient plants in your area. If you've got rare edible plants that no one else has, what you do, give them to your friends. If your ones die by accident, you can go back to your friends. If your friends do that, you'll fill your whole suburb with more plants that people didn't know about and didn't realize they can grow. If you've got locally grown varieties of a plant that does an awesome job in your area, share those and you will find that people will get a lot more yields for the same effort and you're building resilient crops within your local community. That's essentially what we did in the past. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Just looking at some of these traditional practices that people have employed when when their lives depend on their gardening, really really work so it's just a matter of sharing what you have and sharing what you learn and for me what i've learned most significantly is that the unstable weather conditions and seasons make it a lot harder therefore it's more important it's very very important to build resilient systems where plants are protected they're not too exposed where you make it as easy for the plant as possible yeah it can be even as simple even as simple as putting up some shade cloth over plants when you get a 38 degree day or hotter for example yeah because plants don't grow when they are when they're moisture stressed they basically redivert their resources into root growth and that will um, essentially help them to become more moisture stress tolerant so if you can keep them photosynthesizing and breathing keeping their little stomata their little pores open on very hot days you get more growth out of them and if you're going to do that, by the way, use only 50% shade cloth because that's for hu- that's for plants. 70 and 90s for humans, and plants can't get enough light through that. And 50% has the least plastic in it, so it's the cheapest and really easy. Just make sure you put it above and over plants with enough air space so they don't burn because it heats up close to the surface. Very little simple things can make a hell of a difference. What I do with my plants, a lot of one of the most heartbreaking things I have to say for beginners, and this is probably a real valuable tip as well, they put their little seedlings out, they plant their seeds, little seedlings pop up. Next night, all the slugs and snails come in, they mow them all down and they're all gone. That's really heartbreaking. Very, very simple solution. Take a soft drink bottle, cut the bottom off, unscrew the lid because you don't want it to hold air and heat up like a um, greenhouse because you cook the plants, and put it over the plant. The snail slug is not going to go up over a whole soft drink bottle and all the way back down. 
And what it does, if you get a cold night in spring, for example, which would normally stress the plant, it's got its own little mini greenhouse, so it'll survive that. Once the plant gets big enough to fill a bottle, it's big enough to resist snails and slugs, lift it off. That's that's 90% of your pest control already covered. So that's such a great physical barrier. Like so cheap. Like that's it, as long as we're not showing people that garden, you know, people aren't coming and looking at our garden yeah. um, for aesthetic value. That is such a great little hack for anyone at home to do something like that. It works great. Yeah, it's a simple hack. And uh, you can keep the bottles and keep on reusing them, you know, season after season. And like you said, it's a physical control. We've discussed culture controls, just making things harder for pests. We can combine all different measures. Like I said, in permaculture, it's it's knowledge or information and imagination intensive. So if we think a little bit harder about things, think a little bit deeper and get a little bit more creative, you can do a lot more. There's no need to spend money bringing chemicals, make it a really expensive a prohibitively expensive pastime it's really really easy one of the mm. things that how can you put this in one of the permaculture principles or one of one of the key principles of permaculture not, not a design principle but one of the practice practicing principles is what we call observation that's essentially a tool of science and the whole point of it is you go out either open-minded and just see what you experience or you go out with an intention of looking for certain things and see what you find and what you can discover. If you just spend some time unwinding, just chilling out in your garden as well, that's why it's important to create a garden that you can enjoy being around. I, I have what I call rape and pillage gardens, which are typically what, what are typical agricultural areas. You go in there when you need something, you take it and you leave. Uh, it's a bit like you know, Viking raiders raiding English villages on the mm. coastline or something like that. It's 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 a bit of a terrible mm. <laughs> sort of oh, what's it called relationship to have with your garden. It should be a place where you can actually relax and chill out. The fact that you're growing veggies in there or other food or ornamentals that you enjoy, whatever it might be, is only incidental. It should be a place where you can actually go and reconnect with your roots, where you harmonize. We've heard a lot about the phenomenon of biophilia, where humans. They're less stressed, they recover quicker from diseases, and they're much more emotionally imbalanced when they're around nature. It pays to be around nature. It's a really good, healthy habit. So it doesn't matter whether you have a little you know, self-watering tub or you know, a whole stack of pots in a renter's garden. That's your garden. At least you're seeing some green. People have actually in experiments even benefit from looking at posters of nature. They recover faster. One of the funny things is they had was a study it was done a while back where they had hospital patients. I think they were recovering from some kind of surgery, and they had three different groups. One had an empty, basically had a blank wall. Another one had a wall with a picture of nature. Another one had abstract art. And they looked at how quickly the recovery um, times, how quickly they recovered. The people that had pictures of nature recovered quicker than the people with the blank walls. Strangely enough, what would be your guess about how the people of with the abstract art, how quickly they recovered? Where would where do you think they would fit in? Don't tell me the blank wall is more <laughs> sort of conducive to healing than the than the abstract art. Yes, unfortunately. Oh no. Which um, uh, it might have been just a selection of abstract art, but <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, hospital the, art. <laughs> but the fact that there was a significant difference between people looking out of looking at a picture of, na- of nature versus looking at a blank wall. And they said when people have a, a view of an outside 
garden area or something like that or trees, plants, nature, they recovered quicker. I think there were studies that in jails people were less violent, people were a lot more stable in psychiatric institutions and so forth. And so it just it's a really good place to just de-stress. So if anything, if you've got just a little rental property with just bel- even if it's a balcony or courtyard, put your chair outside, look at some sky, put some plants that you enjoy, whether they're edible or not, and just look after them. The fact that you're actually nurturing something living and keeping something alive and you've got a vested interest in something other than yourself actually does wonders. I couldn't agree more. I think that that's such a beautiful note to end it on. I mean, we, as human beings, we like to think of ourselves as separate from nature, but no, we're just another part of the ecosystem, Angelo. Completely. We're an integral part of it. We're not above it and outside it. We're in it. We're in the thick of it, essentially. Once we accept that we're a part of it, then we can Mm. build something that's conducive to our well-being as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your considerable wisdom, mate. I hope that a lot of our listeners are sort of either they've already thought about starting a garden and now they're going to approach it slightly differently with these principles in mind, or maybe they've never considered starting a garden now. And I hope that people are going to start thinking about, hey, even though I may not have perfect conditions, I may not have a whole lot of space, just anything that you can do just brings you a little bit closer to nature. Perfectly summarized. It's exactly, there's no harm in trying and you'll never know if you don't have a go. So I reckon um, just give it a shot and just see what you, you might love it. You might hate it. You might be ambivalent about it, but Unless you've given it a shot, you'll never know the benefit. It's worth giving it a shot. So definitely go out and try it. If you're not making mistakes, you're not learning. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. 100%. And just see what happens. Buy a punnet or um, of seedlings. It's about $5. Get a little pot and some potting mix. For $20, you can get something happening. And it could be the start of a whole new um, interest in gardening. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on the show, mate. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Check out the Deep Green Permaculture website, where you'll find a range of educational resources, including content on permaculture, integrated pest management, and there's even an article I've written on there about plant biology basics. As always, check the show notes for relevant links. If you like this episode, you'll probably also like episode 31 of this podcast, titled Permaculture's 12 Principles, with Paul and Linda Michener, who run Green Life Sorco. You'll probably also like episode 33, Intro to Integrated Pest Management, with Dr. Peter Ridland, who's an honorary fellow in the Biosciences Department at Melbourne University. Yeah, how's your day been other than a bit, bit of congestion? Yeah, oh, the earthquake this morning was rather interesting to say the least. Um, it shook things up quite well. <laughs> <laughs> sort of got woken up. I was trying to have a sleep in and the earthquake in Melbourne here just shook us up quite nicely. So that was a bit of a surprise way to start the day. But other than that, it's been quite nice because we got a lovely spring day. The gardens, we went outside and had a look at the garden. It seems to be thriving. Everything looks nice and 
healthy and growing and everything's it's spring and life mm-hmm. has sprung. It has, hasn't it? Bit of sunshine, bit of rain, bit of temperature increasing. And yeah, everything seems to be on steroids because I'm in maintenance gardening. And the first thing I see is the grass and she's growing at the moment. Yeah, I um, started my whole horticulture career about 10 years ago in maintenance gardening of all things. Yep. And yeah, um, you know, you actually end up getting a very keen eye for the growth phases of plants because that's when all your peak work coincides mm-hmm. that's right totally different to construction and you know putting plants in isn't it yeah yeah completely because it's one thing to put them in it's another thing to keep them alive keep yeah. them going and keep them in order and um, stop them from either overgrowing each other or keeping them growing when they're a bit reluctant to this yeah there is an art to it as well as the science isn't there mm-hmm. absolutely and the yeah you've got to have the art and the science Look, sometimes you just got a mower and that's fine. All you're doing is mowing. There's not too much science behind that. There's a little bit, you know, most sort of grasses tend to want to be cut to, or lawns rather, want to be cut to the, about, you know, one third of their growth off, you know, a bit of science there, you know, you yeah. mulch mow, a bit of science there as well. But once you get into pruning and stuff like that, you can do damage if you don't know what you're doing. Oh, very much so. The other thing I find is even with, with grass, it's just a matter of being attuned to when plants grow and the sort of the attributes of various plants. Have, working in a garden nursery for actually the past decade before I was in maintenance, and I'm still in the nursery industry currently as a horticulturist, we get so many people coming in and they do not know the difference between warm and cool season grasses and they want to grow warm season grasses in the middle of winter or plant seeds for um cool season grasses in the peak of summer and then you have to explain to everybody no these are for this season and those for that season we have the same thing with food plants we get people coming in the middle of winter when it's freezing cold and it's the peak of the peak of winter which is the lowest temperature point and especially in temperate victoria here and people go oh where are all your chilies where are all your tomatoes and i just say queensland because that's where they grow at this time of year <laughs> yeah yeah, it's funny. People will actually sell, or well, nurseries will actually sell you the tomatoes and stuff, you know, just as we're heading yeah. into autumn or whatever. I was about to say, I always warn people that some of the larger sort of nationwide chain store, superstore, large yep. sheds type of yep. places that sell a lot of <laughs> other things, because they distribute nationwide, they also tend to distribute. Uh, plants that are out of season a bit early. So just because if you're going to a, I suppose a superstore type of place to get your plants or your seeds, just realize they might not be in season. And that's why garden calendars are your friend, because I find that people just trust that if it's been sold, therefore it can be planted. And that's a really dangerous assumption, especially with our um, changeable weather in, um, say, September, October, where it's almost verging onto subtropical but we have very cold nights and frost so it makes um makes it a little bit challenging makes gardening a little challenging if you're a beginner and you don't have good advice and it's a shame as well because people who are beginners lack the knowledge to know why that plant failed so they're likely to say oh it's my fault when it's not their fault it's the it's the yeah like you say it's that big certain colour shed who sold them that <laughs> who yeah. sold them that that faulty product essentially. Oh essentially yeah. it's basically um and it's an uns- yeah it's they're selling a plant out of its correct growing season. The 
yeah, the thing that we see a lot in horticulture is we've seen a huge boom in people wanting to grow food. And a lot of people come in, oh, I remember the first COVID outbreak when, when everyone was literally cleaning supermarkets out there, cleaning nurseries out of seedlings and seeds. And we have never seen so much, in the whole decade I've been working in the industry, in retail nursery, in, in the, for the whole decade that I've been working in the whole retail nursery industry, I've never seen so many new beginners, so many noobs that have never, ever touched a plant before mm. wanting to grow food. And what was rather interesting was that they were making all the common mistakes and and sometimes they were doing things like buying things from places that were out of season, planting them, finding that they got cut down by the first frosts and then going, yeah. oh, maybe it's me. I'm just really a bad gardener. And yeah. We had to correct them and say, no, no, it's, it's nothing to do with you. It's this. You know, you're not meant to plant until this time and so forth. Uh, which is, but the good thing is, I've been finding having a lot of more people interested in gardening. There's a lot more sort of demand for gardening education, which is what I do, which is really really good, growing fruit, veggies, and herbs and everything else. And I think what's been happening, it's a slow revolution where we're slowly um, and gradually teach. What's the best way of saying this? There's slow and gradual reclamation of the skill of growing your own food, people learning self-reliance again. And it's something that probably has skipped a generation with a lot of people. Their grandparents might have been growing food, their parents didn't, and they've started doing it again. And it's so encouraging during lockdowns when we go for our little exercise walks that we're permitted our two hours out of our homes or whatever it is these days, that you just walk. It's really interesting just to walk past front yards rather than going through regular walking tracks, which um, it's nice to see some trees every now and then, but it's really fascinating just to walk past people's gardens and see what they're actually doing with them. And what was essentially a horticultural wasteland, you know, maybe five years ago has become a diverse range of individual expression where you're seeing little mini sort of, oh, what would you call I was going to call them mini farms, but a lot of them are actually a lot more sustainable than that. Um, we're seeing lots of mini food production systems. We're seeing uh, ornamental gardens. We're seeing native gardens all springing up, and it's really, really fascinating. And for me, it's quite encouraging because it's showing that people are swinging back, gravitating to their roots, you know, reconnecting with nature, which for me is an encouraging. I've been spending all my time on my website trying to encourage people to reconnect with nature and explain the benefits and explain how to work with nature. And now we're seeing people almost out of, I don't know, boredom, frustration, insecurity, whatever it might be due to the pandemic and spare time for that matter, um, doing something to help their mental health, help the environment, help their bodies by growing their own food. So I'm so stoked that there is a positive side that's come out of this.